The UCSF Rosamond Institute is a beacon of hope for a healthier and more equitable world. Its mission is to unleash the full potential of healthcare innovation and empower the next generation of game changers. By connecting with a network of investors, payers, mentors, and industry experts, the Institute provides an inclusive platform for innovators to bring their transformative solutions to life. And it doesn't stop there. The UCSF Rosamond Institute is dedicated to promoting equity and serving underrepresented and underserved populations who stand to benefit the most from these cutting-edge solutions. With our partnership with MedTech Venture Partners, a fund that invests in early-stage health technology startups, the Institute is leading the charge in a new era of healthcare innovation. Join us on this incredible journey to improve lives and create a better world. To learn more, please visit us at www.rosamaninstitute.org. And I asked him, what's the secret? He said, the secret is there is no secret. It is really about providing standards-based care and listening and working with the patient closely. And the reason why we don't do that in this country is not because people don't know how to, but because there is not the reimbursement mechanism that favors it. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast, with your host, Christine Winotto. Ivan Rajan has hit a six with his latest entrepreneurial endeavor, Cricket Health. From being part of the executive leadership team at LinkedIn to now founding a transformative healthcare company, Arvin is an entrepreneur and leader of many flavors. Curiosity, a desire to make an impact, and a hunger to learn from industry leaders across various sectors have driven Arvin toward his venture into the healthcare space. Seeking to shift the focus of kidney disease treatment from life support to preventive care, Arvin has played a key role in transforming value-based kidney disease care. Today, I'm so happy to speak with Arvin about his journey to founding Cricket Health and his reflections on these exciting ventures. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Arvin. Thanks for joining me this morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited. Congratulations to all the uh, amazing success at Cricket Health. Um, but I thought it would be interesting for a lot of our listeners to hear a little bit about the background of you. Um, I thought it was really interesting that when I look at your LinkedIn, you were not in the healthcare field before you start Cricket Health. And what's the genesis and why Cricket Hell like, was the journey take us uh, that you took. You're right. It has been an interesting journey. That's the right word for it. Uh, interesting. You know, I think back about, about my career and I've been working now for in the workforce for 32 years. Every single job I've ever had in my life has been in a brand new industry that I know nothing about. And so going into healthcare by itself was not like some radical departure from my past. You know, Cricket was born in out of conversation starting in late 2014. Before Cricket, I had been on the executive team at LinkedIn for many years and had we'd built that from a small startup to a pretty big successful company. And then after that, I thought I had retired. And then after six months, I got a little bit bored and I said, okay, what will I now do with my time? And I just said, 
okay, I want to work on something that's tackling a really hard problem. And one where if we're successful, we'll have a big impact on people's lives. And that was really it. I didn't know it was going to be kidney care or healthcare at all. Um, it was really just a process of now exploring and talking to people and talking about smart, talk to smart people about problems. And we found our way to kidney disease. And uh, I remember meeting with a professor at UCSF, Dr. Carmen Peralta, who I didn't know, but is now both a friend and a colleague. And uh, she had been a professor of nephrology for many years. And she had built her career not on where most people spend their time in kidney disease, but really on how you actually prevent kidney failure. How do you find patients early and intervene to slow progression? And I remember after that conversation, it was a lunch at UCSF where she somehow agreed to talk to some random person she had never met before. And I remember thinking, okay, that's the company uh, that we can build. And uh, we kind of went from there. And, you know, when we started, six, seven years ago, all of the investment energy and focus in kidney disease was on dialysis, which is basically life support after your kidneys fail. I mean, as you may know, you know, we always talk about the US healthcare system not being a healthcare system, being a sick care system. Well, kidney disease isn't even that. We don't even have a sick care system. We have a life support system. So we spend all our time ignoring kidney disease until your kidneys have failed. And then we spend literally over $100 billion a year keeping you alive after your kidneys fail. And so we said, well, boy, could you build a kidney care company where both the clinical focus, but also the profit engine of the business was not in dialysis, but in keeping people from kidney failure, keeping them out of the hospital and out of a dialysis clinic. And again, when we started, we couldn't get the time of day from either investors or customers. And now looking back now, sitting here seven or eight years later, it's hard to overstate how much this industry has changed. The entire conversation in kidney care is all about preventing kidney failure, getting people out of dialysis centers to transplant or home dialysis. And um, I'd like to think that we had a big part in driving that transition. And so I'm, I'm really pleased at uh, what we were able to accomplish. I mean, it's not over yet. There's a long way to go. But um, I'm really proud of the company that we built. Yeah, no, that's a really, uh, I think it's interesting when you're saying, which is exactly like people like to say, they only want to solve the problem and the problem right, right in front of them. Like preventive is always hard to get invested, excited about. And I think oftentimes it's more like, how do you measure the endpoint? Because, you know, that's harder to think about. Maybe that's what happened. But I, before I go delve in into that, I just want to uh, hear a bit more your process, your exploration process for those people out there who are trying to start a company, looking for uh things to, you know, start an event, this adventure. Like, what is the process that you have in mind? Like when you go talk to different people, like do you have a certain framework that, you know, I'm doing going out there looking for a problem that I can solve or just going in there because you just want to meet with amazing people that you want to learn from? Well, I, th I think that, you know, people come to starting companies from different places. So some people are just experts at what they do. And then they focus there, they learn something new or they discover something going, I'm going to make this now a company. I'm never, I've never been smart enough to be able to do that. So uh, I'm, um, I'm just a generalist and I'm curious. And so my process was just talking to as many smart people as I could. 
I mean, like reading articles, reading every newspaper I could and reading clinical, not no, clinical scientific papers and just exploring randomly. There was no particular rhyme or reason to it. Um, and, but then when you come up with an idea or come up with an area, you know, it was then a question of not only figuring out, well, could something better be done? And, and would it, uh, could you actually make it successful? But also is the timing right? I mean, as you may know, you can have the best idea in the world uh, and one that will have a huge impact, but unless the timing is right, it can completely fail. Whether it means there, you know, in healthcare, as you know, it, often it's around, is there a, are there the right set of financial incentives in place that make it possible? Uh, but there, you know, is it in the interest of payers? Is it in, is it interest of, of providers? And so part of it was not just coming up with a good idea, but determining whether or not um, the timing was right to make it into a business. And in the case of kidney care, um, you know, the secret in kidney disease is that there's no secret. I mean, every like I remember this conversation vividly. I was having breakfast with uh, Glenn Chertow, and Glenn was a longtime head of nephrology at at Stanford, and a brilliant, brilliant um, researcher, leader, but also physician. And I remember Glenn telling me, and and by the way, Glenn has a list of publications a mile long. I mean, he's received every award in research in kidney disease that there is. I remember Glenn telling me that the thing that he was proudest of in his career is that he has kept many of his patients away from kidney failure for years and years and years. And I asked him, what's the secret? He said, the secret is there is no secret. It is really about providing standards-based care and listening and working with the patient closely. And the reason why we don't do that in this country is not because people don't know how to, but because there is not the reimbursement mechanism that favors it. But, and also it takes a remarkable amount of time with every patient. And, you, and then we said, okay, well, geez, that's really interesting. Now, and, and I remember then talking to Carmen, uh, Carmen Peralta, who had spent her career in building models to find these patients earlier, well before kidney failure. And that, those two things taken together was really what we do now. We said, boy, could you build a way to find patients earlier in their journey with kidney disease. But second, could you build a scalable way of delivering care for them, which doesn't require hours and hours of a clinician's time every week, but in a way that you could actually leverage technology and a bunch of other things to get people to the same kinds of outcomes that Glenn was able to achieve. And, you know, that's kind of how Cricket was born. Mm -hmm. And so you're saying also that timing is everything, right? When you're doing all this uh, conversation and you're saying earlier, even the investor looking at, you know, is that like, you know, they, they're not that interested. But how do you know? And it, how do you make the timing work for you? If you think about the investor looking at the timing, this is like, oh, this is not something that they want to do. But you know, what other factors that actually change their mind? Yeah, well, I think in our case, well, there are several things to that. I mean, so the re well, let me start off with what we thought. Mm -hmm. So we we were interested because in, in the problem because we said, okay, well, we think we have an idea of what the solution could be to the problem, and we were going to then test it and validate it out in real research to see not see if whether this thesis we had would actually work with patients. And so that was the first piece. The second question was, well, do we is there do we have a belief that 
there was a way to take this from a good idea for patients into a business that you could actually make money in. And in our case, there are a few things that that um, that we saw. We saw the level of frustration that payers were having with uh, with the dialysis industry and the amount of money they were spending. We knew that Medicare, which is where most of these patients live, and most patients who are on dialysis are covered by CMS. We knew that Medicare was really interested in driving more value-based care in kidney disease. And uh, and so there were a bunch of different strands that we saw that we thought could come together. We knew that the timing wasn't now. We knew that like if we were to have, if we had raised a hundred million dollars or two hundred million dollars, some insane amount of money in 2015, and began going with full all cylinders, that would have actually been a failure. Sometimes too much money is a is equally as bad as not enough money. We would have spent a lot of money in a market that wasn't ready for it. So we said, okay, let's actually begin quite small and begin to validate that what we were what we could that we could do what we thought we could do in in the form of clinical research and give it time for the market to catch up. We wanted to be slightly ahead of the market, not years and years ahead of the market. Um, and, and I do think in, in figuring all this out, it really does help to have some experience because I've done this before. We've I've been at companies or started companies that built to try to build new industries. And I, you know, in many cases, we were really unsuccessful. I mean, there's a company that I helped start in 1999. We were applying using the internet in politics. And, you know, we were not successful. We were probably a decade ahead of our time. Mm -hmm. And I remember like that team we had that started this company called Grassroots. I've never worked with a smarter group of people. My co-founder, Rob Doss, he left this former company called Splunk, which is now a really big company. Uh, um, there are people like that on our executive team, but our timing was wrong. We were way too early for the market. And so, um, you know, uh, being able to um, not only um, understand the dynamics of an industry, but have a kind of a built in intuitive feel for when things might work and why not is just something you learn by screwing up over and over again. And I, and I distinctly remember this moment at Cricket. It was three years in to our journey. And before we had raised our Series A, where I finally felt, wow, there's something I feel here where this is this is going to happen. Because you know, as a startup, when you're on the early, when you're in the early days of a startup, I don't care what you hear after the fact, every entrepreneur will go, I had doubts. You never let those doubts show. But internally, you're always vacillating between euphoria and incredible depression. Right. <laughs> Uh, and, and I remember this feeling in early 2018 when we finally had enough clinical data to start getting interest from payers. And we just begun fundraising for our Series A, which ended up, we ended up raising a bit of money from uh, some great investors. I remember feeling a feeling in my gut saying, this is, this is going to happen. And, and I, what I liken it to was when I was at LinkedIn in 2008. Uh, I joined LinkedIn as an advisor in early 2008 because um, the chairman and founder, the co-founder of the company, Reid Hoffman, is an old friend and asked me to come help raise a, a really big round of funding. And, and not to do the fundraising piece, but to build the story that we would mm -hmm. use to raise the round. And it's hard for people to remember this, but in early 2008, many people had written LinkedIn off. 
as a company. Mm. It was viewed as a failure. And many people thought that Facebook was going to own both your personal identity online, but also your professional one. And, uh, and so I remember, though, kind of looking through the data, trying to build the narrative and understand the core dynamics of the business. And I remember very distinctly, I was sort of three weeks in to this effort, and Steve Sordello, who was the CFO of LinkedIn for then over a decade, came to me and said, Arvind, so what do you think? And I said, Steve, what I think is, as long as we don't really screw this up, we're going to build an amazing company. Because you could see it in the data. You could see what was happening in micro segments of our audience when we hit certain critical threshold of growth. And you could sort of, and you could sort of see how it all in, in, it develop. And of course, LinkedIn ended up becoming better than we thought we were going to build, but you mm-hmm. could see it in the numbers. And I, I remember thinking, oh my God, I've got to now join this company because it's mm-hmm. going to be this incredible rocket ship. But I remember very distinctly in March 2018, feeling that way at Cricket. Uh, and, um, and, you know, again, it, it, as you know, healthcare things take a long time. Things right. don't move at, at tech company speed, but, uh, I think we are now there for the company. Mm-hmm. Is it because you, you were saying that earlier, like the clinical data that the getting the peers buy-in, that was the moment for you to know that this is the right moment for cricket. Yeah. It was a combination of now, uh, being able to see across a wider patient population, uh, the impact that we were having, and but also small things that were just basic hypotheses, seeing early indications that they might prove out to be true. And, um, and but yes, then also the payer side, uh, seeing what the payers were um, finally interested in. I mean, unfortunately, one of the challenges was, again, going back several years ago, when payers thought about kidney disease and what they wanted to invest in, all they cared about was getting a lower price dialysis provider. That was it. And they weren't really that interested in interventions in CKD or in the transition. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that we were able to show to payers was that these patients aren't only expensive when they're on dialysis. They're actually expensive before. And also, the only way to influence their, their trajectory when they're on dialysis is to begin well in advance of kidney failure. And, you know, payers had tried for years, or, and prov- dialysis providers had tried for years to try to get, to pa- get patients on home dialysis therapies rather than in-center dialysis. Because not only did it lead to better outcomes for patients, but also better quality of life and um, lower costs. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, Turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting when you mentioned about the timing, uh, when timing is not right, you know, the, just, the company can just fail. But I think sometimes as an entrepreneur, you can also look at the timing and adjust 
so that it fits the right timing. Is that something that you think that's happening? Yeah, I, I think I think so. I mean, I do think that um, sometimes things take longer than you expect, and you just need to adjust your your plans accordingly. I, I, you know, I go back to LinkedIn, uh, which is the company I was at before. Uh, LinkedIn was started in two thousand three, and um, by two thousand seven, which was re- four years later, the company only had fifty or sixty people. It was a really small company. Um, but the, the the team at LinkedIn, uh, led by Reed, said, okay, it's going to take us time before LinkedIn is actually valuable to people. So until that point, we're going to keep the burn rate really low, not focus on making money at all, but just focus on growth. And because, because we know that once we get to a certain size, LinkedIn will actually start becoming valuable. And once we start becoming valuable, we can now think about driving revenue from it. So it was a really long, kind of a long, slow journey until we hit the tipping point. Then we said, okay, let's start putting, pouring on the gas, raise more money, build out the team more aggressively. And so you're right. You can adjust your time horizon based on what the realities are. Um, but, and, and sometimes that works out. And sometimes, unfortunately, it's too long, mm-hmm. right? Your investors become impatient. Right. Uh, and you've got to make some hard decisions. Um, I think that's one of the, I think, one of the biggest mistakes that entrepreneurs make is raising too much money too soon. Because once you raise the money, you raise expectations, mm-hmm. you often make irrational decisions, or more importantly, you fail to make hard decisions. Uh, what's, what you often, you know, almost every successful company kind of has to walk through the valley of death mm-hmm. where you think you're going to die. And the reason why that's the case is because when that happens, you f- you're forced to choose a path. You, f- you can't kind of keep juggling all the balls. You got to pick one ball. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you pick the wrong one, the company dies. But those that pick the right one will actually make it. And uh, but it's it's a hard journey at the start, and it's a really scary one because you don't know what's going to hit. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, it's almost I always tell people it's like you have to go through the hard part in order to go to the other side. And if you yeah. never go through the hard part, you never go to the other side. But oftentimes, you know, people always say, yeah, you take money, too much money too early. And also there's that temptation that sometimes reality, it's nice to have the money, then you don't have to constantly looking for funding because that takes a lot of your time. And how do you balance it? And what's the right amount? Yeah. I, well, I think that's right. I think there's, uh, so with, with the taking too much money part, I think there are two potential bad outcomes because of that. The first is simply raising expectations, um, not having to make hard choices, hiring too quickly, and becoming incredibly scattered and, lack, and, and unfocused. The other part is the terms in w- under which you raise that money. Because once you raise money, especially if you raise money at a really high valuation, which is often what happens, you're then stuck in this position where you've got a very high valuation. And now you find yourself in a position where raising the next round becomes incredibly hard because you've got to show value creation from the last round. And if you if you overvalued it in the previous round, you're never going to get there. You end up in this really horrible negative spiral where people start looking at mul- liquidation preferences and 
and all kinds of, you know, all kinds of negative outcomes. And so that's always a negative. Now, there is a way to raise a lot of money early, uh, which doesn't have that impact, which is one where you basically raise the money and go, you know what? To you t- you're very transparent with your investors and you say, we're not going to spend this money. Mm-hmm. This is going to remain dry powder. It'll take this, take the pressure of fundraising off for the next three, four years, but it's like a four year journey before mm-hmm. we're going to raise again. Uh, but as opposed to 18 months. So again, as long as management understands that, hey, we're raising this money so we have the resources, but we're not actually going to spend it. We're actually going to be really slow and prudent. You know, you can make it work and be very successful on it, but I think that's not what often happens. Mm -hmm. You raise the money, you start pouring on the gas, and, uh, you know, you end up in a difficult place. Yeah, and I think it's hard to keep that discipline too when you have a lot of money. Is that's right? It's your brain is wired differently when you see like, well, you know. Uh, so with this current financial downturn or uh, the current financial climate, so there is uh, more um, the evaluation. The valuation is not so crazy. So actually, it's a good thing. Yeah, I think so. I, mean, I think in general. Um, more rational valuations in the long run are a good thing. I think it's, 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 you know, there's often people talk about the fact that the best time to start a company is a downturn, blah, blah, blah. And then so many great companies were started in downturns. And that's true. I mean, uh, that's a bit misleading because it leaves off the many companies that could have been funded in an up market that never got the time of day because investors were gun shy. Uh, but what I would say is the following. I think, you know, we, the hardest time to raise money is not in a downturn but in the lead up to a downturn. Because, you know, all these funds have raised tons of cash. They're, they have to invest that money. So it's not like it's going to go away. These, mm-hmm. A lot of the big funds have raised hundreds of millions or billions of dollars that they have to deploy. So the money is there. The challenging part is in a situation like where we are now is knowing how to price it, how to price rounds. And so when investors don't know how to price a deal, they often just wait and sit on their, sit on their hands. Mm-hmm. And so that just makes it pretty hard to kind of is to get a deal done uh, because, you know, companies are investors, not sure how to value companies. And that's especially true at the early stages where in investing value with early stage companies is an art, not right. a science. It's not like you're looking at cash flow multiples and, you know, you take the revenue with projections with a grain of salt. And so it just makes it a little bit hard. But once we kind of get through this period, um, and and there's a sense of what things actually look like from a valuation perspective. I think it's it then becomes you know a much easier um, a much easier path. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think in healthcare, the um, irrational valuations that have been and and amounts of money that have been thrown at companies in healthcare services are not a good thing. And and I say that with the realization that many of these are actually good companies and good ideas that I really hope are going to be successful because they will they will do good in the world. But they raise money in a way that was fiscally imprudent. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's going to put them in a hard place. And I won't talk about specific companies, but there's some that I know of where I go, God, I really wish these people make it. Mm-hmm. But they're now valued in the billions of dollars and there is no rational argument for how they're actually worth anything close to that mm-hmm. over the next five to seven years. Yeah. It's like the, the money doesn't match the value. 
Yeah. And that is hard to catch up. And, and, and you, you can, and, and that's not always a bad thing because if you believe, you, if you make certain bets, assuming, listen, we're going to, yeah, the value isn't there now, but I can see a path to get there. And we're just going to be very aggressive about it and take some risk. I get that. Investors do that all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, LinkedIn got acquired for my, by Microsoft for $27 billion and people said they paid too much. Microsoft, and I think they didn't, pay, that was a, the bargain of the century because of how successful LinkedIn has been under Microsoft. Mm-hmm. But the problem in some of these companies that I'm in the healthcare world is there's not even a thesis on how they're going to ever get to that kind of value creation. I mean, you're seeing companies, and I would argue what look like smart health, smart investors that have invested in healthcare companies with very that are very big names that valued healthcare services companies at software company multiples. And as we all know, looking at top line revenue for a company delivering healthcare services is a mm-hmm. is a not a particularly rational way of determining value. Yeah, it's almost like price over dream. Yeah, I think yeah. that's often time. I know we are short on time. I feel like I I can uh, I have so many questions to ask. One of the things that you've done, the, you know, you said that you were part of the organization, that timing was not right. You, you were part of LinkedIn and the cricket. What are the lessons learned that you remember for your next journey, whatever that you choose to, that you want to do next? Yeah. So, so I'll tell you, I'll tell you my big lessons learned in healthcare and then we talk more generally. Um, number one, you know, everyone who enters healthcare for the first time realizes that being Having something being better for patients is insufficient. It also has to save money for payers. And save money for payers, not in over five years, but over two years, because most payers have a very short return time horizon. But the third piece is equally critical. I think the way to create truly transformational health care companies is that is better better for patients, saves money for payers, but is also financially aligned with providers. Because if it's not in the financial interest providers, it is really hard to make happen. Mm-hmm. So I, that's sort of number one. Number two is, it is I relearned again what I've learned in every single company outside of healthcare, that when you're building early stage companies, you always value talent over experience. And, you know, and what I mean by that is, you know, when you're in the early stages, you're growing so quickly, but there's also so many unknowns in the business that you got to figure out where you're working off a blank sheet of paper with no direction that it requires a certain kind of person to do that and do that well. And intellectual agility is so incredibly valuable. That is often way more important than having years or decades of experience. Now, I don't mean that in terms of clinical care. Mm-hmm. Like for clinicians, absolutely, experience is valuable. But when it comes to everything else in the business, always value talent over experience. And I, and I, and I, all when I think about the big hiring mistakes I made at Cricket is when I decided, well, maybe healthcare is different. Mm-hmm. Having deep, deep experience is actually more useful. And I, it almost always turns out not to be the case. There are always exceptions to that. And there are always people, by the way, who've got deep experience who are also incredibly intellectually agile. Mm-hmm. But if it's a choice between the two, always choose a talent over experience. 
And I think sometimes, oftentimes, people got enamored with somebody's experience rather than thinking about the agility of the intellectual thing. And that's harder to gauge sometimes. I think the experience you can see on a piece of paper. Yeah, I think that's right. However, I mean, having done this now and hired people across a bunch of companies over the years that were fast growth companies, I think I've become pretty good at gauging that. Mm -hmm. Including people, you know, often startup people go, you never hire people out of big companies because they're not used to the pace that you need. But there's some incredibly talented people I've hired over big, out of big companies over the years that, are, that have done wonderful things for us. And there are ways of sort of figuring that out mm-hmm. and through the interview process and talking about background. So I don't think it's a, it's, it's, you're, yeah, there's always, a, there's always a chance you'll screw it up. Mm-hmm. But I do think you can figure that, you can get to that question with a bit of effort. Brought me to ask the question, how do you figure it out? I mean, part of it is, you know, let's imagine you're talking to someone who has been at a big company for 12 years. And, um, you know, you start talking about examples in their career where they actually had to work where there's no direction, right? And so, like, talk, give me an example of an area where you had complete white space to figure something out. Walk me through what happened. Um, I, so that's one thing. And talk, like, go to very specific cases. And, and you talk about, you, you look for things like, I mean, often you, what you see in big companies, if, you, if often if you're around long enough, you're going to move up in the organization. It's just the natural law, you know, people just get promoted. Mm-hmm. And so you look for things like whether or not they got promoted ahead of their peers. Um, were they the ones that leaders chose for the hard assignments? Um, you look for things like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and you look to see what gets them energized. I mean, some people, when you give them no direction and you give them, you know, go f- give them like complete, like wide open space, that's paralyzing, overwhelming. Some people, that's like the most exciting thing in the world. Right. Some people who are incredibly valuable are really good optimizers. And, and that's incredibly important, right? Someone who can figure out how to get contribution margin from 37 to 40% is a rock star in a big company. At a startup, figuring out how to change contribution from 37 to 40% is a is not something that's not even in the radar screen, right? And so it's partly not a question of whether or not this person's talented and smart and and a wonderful person. It's whether or not they're the right person for the company at this time, and separating those two, because we you know they may be you do the opposite. You throw a great startup person who's good with a bunch of paper. You throw in a big organization that, who doesn't know how to navigate an organization to get things done, they're going to fail. Yeah. Yeah. I know I said that was my last question, but last, last question. What is the mantra that you tell yourself when things get hard? Interesting. You know, um, whenever, before working in healthcare, when people would get really stressed and hard, what I always tell people is, hey, you're, don't stress it. What's the worst that's going to happen? No one's going to die. Now in healthcare, it's very different. The worst that'll happen is people will die. And so, you know, so I, I modified that at Cricket and I said, listen, the, the mantra we use here is that if we are going to be successful, we need to be highly tolerant of taking business risks. But we are highly intolerant of taking patient risks. 
So that's one thing. The second thing I would just say is, and, and you know, as I've gotten older uh, and done it, startups more and more, it's not like I've become smarter. I mean, I'm the same person I was when I was 20 years old at our first startup trying to figure things out. Um, I've become more and more comfortable in my own ignorance. Mm. And being able to admit what you don't know is incredibly valuable. Yeah. Because I find it incredibly empowering to say, hey, we have no idea. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're going to figure it out. You know, I always tell people this, that when you're interviewing and hiring for people at an early stage company, if you've got someone who comes in saying they know all the answers, you know that they're either lying to themselves or lying to everybody else because nobody has the answers. And that's okay. Yeah. Everyone is in that position at an early stage company. Yeah. When you're, and that's the that's the fun part, right? right? Is figuring it out, but approaching things from a sense of humility, saying I don't know what we're doing, but we're smart enough. We'll figure things out. Is I think the recipe for building something that could eventually become valuable and successful. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, thank you so much for this conversation, and it's been really fun and so exciting for me to learn your journey and a lot of your insight. Thank you. It's lovely to talk to you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.